welcome to the Liberated Porch Podcast. I'm your host, Kit Morgan, licensed social worker and therapist. Join me as I sit down with guests to chat about finding liberation through social justice and mental health. Cassie was born in rural Southern West Virginia to a family that was deeply rooted in evangelicalism, music, and the practice of using local plants and herbs as medicine. Cassie jokingly refers to herself as West Virginian royalty because she is a direct descendant of the Hatfields of the Hatfield and McCoy feud. Although the adversity of this area framed Cassie's perspective for the acceptance of future hardships, she has found great healing in returning to her Appalachian roots. It is so great to have you here on the Liberate Porch today, Cassie. I am so pumped for this conversation. I'm so excited. I was like a little kid last night, couldn't sleep. (laughs) (laughs) So for those of our listeners who are not familiar about this for myself, my dad's side of the family is Appalachian. And Mm -hmm. so in part of my healing work, I have begun returning back to my Appalachian roots. And there's a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding out there about folks from Appalachia. And then whenever I saw what content you were creating, Cassie, I was just like, yes, like, this is everything. (laughs) This is so great. Yeah, I, yeah, there are, and I come from a particularly, um, stereotyped piece of Appalachia being in the southern rural Appalachia you know the hillbilly stereotype there's a lot a lot of deeply seated poverty cyclical things so yeah like if you think of of movies that were just outrageous like wrong turn I mean that's Mm. my area that it's kind of quote-unquote based on so So, go into the hillbilly part because not all people from Appalachia are hillbillies Mm -hmm. and then the hillbilly stereotype that people have, that's been going on now for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And so why don't we start off and talking about the Hatfields and McCoys? Because I don't think that everyone knows about the Hatfields and McCoys. Right. They they don't, even though there have been major movies made about it, a lot of people um, don't know about them. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us about the Hatfields and McCoys and what happened with the feud there. Okay, so um, my history might be a little bit spotty, so bear with me, but um, the Hatfield and McCoy's feud began allegedly over a hog. Okay, so the Hatfields lived in the, on West Virginia, and then across the river, the Tug River, into Kentucky were the McCoy's. And apparently there was a hog that someone uh, found or took ownership of, and it didn't belong to them. And so then throw in some star-crossed lovers from one from the McCoys, one from the Hatfields, like a Romeo and Juliet, but a mountain version. Throw that in, and then this feud just continued. It was, you know, whatever the truth was of why the feud started, I don't think anyone really understood why they were fighting after years and years of this feud. And so there was so much, the nature of that area is that it is so isolated from everywhere else that that this feud and these ideas of why people were angry, it just kept going on and on and on and on. And it's just kind of this fascinating piece of of Appalachian history. And so my... 
my great whatever grandfather was not Devil Ants. Devil Ants is the most well-known character from the Hatfield side, but it was his older brother, Wall Hatfield, or Valentine, Valentine, Valentine Hatfield. That was my my great whatever grandfather. Mm, okay, so I learned about the Hatfields and McCoys in history class, mm-hmm. and my dad he wouldn't get mad that often but whenever he got mad he got mad mm-hmm. and I remember him getting upset of the way that I was taught about the Hatfields and McCoys there was this pretty crude caricature of the Hatfields and McCoys and hillbillies in my history book that I had brought home and The history teacher was talking about, you know, how dumb of fighting over a hog and not really looking at what the significance of the Mm -hmm. hog was. Because whenever looking at hillbillies and food, I mean, there was a lot of food scarcity that happened in Appalachia. And if you think about a hog, like a hog could feed a family for a long time. And not only that, but you're having to sacrifice your own food in order to feed the hog. Mm -hmm. And then you're also using the lard from the hog to be able to help with different medicines that you're making and different household products. So in order to be losing that, you're losing food you're losing household products it's more than just a hog yeah and and you know you're also losing the time that you invested in that piece of you know in that resource really because time is also a resource Mm -hmm. Um, yeah you're losing a lot yeah definitely so you know there's been this talk about reclaiming the word hillbilly and I'm wondering what what do you think about that the word hillbilly or reclaiming that word. I'm actually for that. I think language is so powerful, particularly when we reclaim ownership of specific things that have maybe been used to, you know, put someone down, put down um, a whole sector of people. And so I think that that is great because, you know, being from West Virginia, being from the hills, being all of these things have this negative connotation that it just should not exist. Because, you know, what the reason that we are hillbillies is because of, again, the isolation. Geographically, West Virginia is a very isolated area. And so the culture that we kind of, um, the culture that we cultivated within that community, within the state, it's just not well known to other people. And because it's misunderstood, people are quick to pass judgment. So perhaps reclaiming that term hillbilly would actually bring a little bit of enlightenment around what it means to be a hillbilly. Yes, absolutely. And I think one of these just misinformation about hillbillies is that they chose to self-isolate. But Mm -hmm. A lot of this was because they were isolated due to coal companies and other big corporations, and they didn't want the outside world to know how they had essentially human trafficked an entire group of people. Yeah, there's, yes, absolutely. There's, the people of West Virginia are so proud as they should be because they've Mm -hmm. worked so hard, but Mm -hmm. they're, 
we have been um, preyed upon by a lot of people, particularly billionaires, particularly the extremely wealthy. They come in and they see a vulnerable population. Again, with that Mm -hmm. isolation comes lack of exposure to certain things, to um, certain experiences and wisdom um, that you can only get by perhaps leaving the area. So people see that. They see an opportunity to prey upon people. And it's really unfortunate that that's what's happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. There's that phrase post-traumatic growth of mm-hmm. how people who have experienced trauma have a greater capacity to grow beyond those who have not experienced trauma. And I think about that in these hillbilly areas of what they've experienced and how they really changed the narrative, you know, even that phrase, we kept the lights on, or we helped in winning the world wars. That's post-traumatic growth speaking right there, you know, because they're saying this. And yet they were in a lot of darkness of, you know, being in coal mines, or even like whenever I would be going down to be visiting family, you know, um, it was pretty startling for me to have not seen it before until I was uh, like around four or five years old, but I didn't really comprehend it until later childhood where I was like, oh, wow, like those aren't gray houses. Those are white houses and they're gray because of coal dust. Yeah. And seeing those different things, you know, and yet there is still community pride. Absolutely. I mean, West Virginians, I think another part of um, the stereotype that jades who West Virginia is, is that we are unapproachable, we hate everyone, that we are just, you know, sitting in our rockers and judging everyone. And that's not necessarily the whole truth. Um, Because like you mentioned, we didn't want to be judged by people at points. There's a lot of, even though there's a lot of pride, there's a lot of inherent shame also about things. And mm-hmm. it's just, it's unfortunate the way people kind of view people, view our people, my people with such a jaded lens. Mm. Speaking of that shame piece, it reminds me of J.D. Vance and Hillbilly mm-hmm. Elegy. Every time I tell people that, you know, my dad's side of the family was hillbilly, then I get asked, you know, and and people get really excited and they smile. They're like, oh, have you read Hillbilly Elegy before? And I'm just like, oh, no. (laughs) Like, it's just like this, this, you know, and whenever I, I read that book and I also watched the film about it. I didn't see this success story. I saw a story about shame. Yeah. I mean, part of that is simply because no one likes to focus on the fact that that population has achieved so much, is continuing to achieve so much because that's not what sells, right? But, and you have an outsider like J.D. Vance coming in, pretending to be an insider, and that's part of it. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. But... There, there is a lot of success in that state. I mean, the sense of community that exists, or at least did exist at points, things are changing over the most recent decades, but the sense of community that exists is so strong. Like you, I can't think of other states or other areas that have the same sense of like, 
if your neighbor needs something, you go and you help them, you know, mm-hmm. you, and it comes to, a, it comes to it with a, de- to a detriment at, at points because people self-sacrifice so much. But right. No, yeah. I, I, that's something I had to struggle with myself was to learn that I don't need to self-sacrifice, but that sense of community that it creates that, that mentality of I'm going to help people just because they're people. It's so beautiful. It really is. So you were talking about this shift in and change in the recent decades. And I'm wondering, are you referring to the opioid crisis? That is a large part of it. So Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how much people know about the opioid crisis and how it affects Southern West Virginia. Now, largely the area um, that I'm going to be talking about is about an hour east of me, but it's still very close. So this area is more in more of the coal mining area, um, like the Beckley, West Virginia area. So when the opioids, um, I forget what the first, what the medication was that they, they first came out with, but when this started, when they came out with that first opioid, that was that mainstream pain medication, they saw again, a vulnerable population in West Virginia and thought, we're going to try this out on this population. We're just going to hand it out like candy. And then eventually, you know, they started restricting access. So it became this whole issue of supply and demand, unfortunately, in the end of there were people who were addicted to this drug. They were told was not addictive. They were told would change their life. And you have to think about the coal mining industry and how many physical ramifications there are how many physical injuries there are to someone's body and how much pain that causes. So great opportunity to just hand out pain medication. And so we were told by the rich, these pills are great. These pills will change your life. They will fix you. There, there are no, no side effects. You won't get addicted. And then as people started getting addicted, they started, you know, um, reeling back the amount that they would prescribe, the doctors did. And with all of these lies and misinformation, there was this problem that was just created of such a large piece of the population having this addiction issue and having no way to get the medicine that their bodies were craving. You know, we create this problem and then we criminalize it. And Mm -hmm. we don't give people the tools, most of all, is I think my sticking point, we don't give the people the appropriate tools to deal with the issue that was created. Yes, exactly. And I mean, just even as you're saying this, I mean, I just feel the frustration and the anger just coming into my body about that. Mm -hmm. Whenever I watched the show on Hulu, Dope Sick, Mm -hmm. I wasn't able to finish the entire show because it just made me so mad. Because what what the pharmaceutical industry did in testing opioids on human beings is Mm -hmm. absolutely deplorable about Mm -hmm. what they did. And, you know, and as you were mentioning, it was, they're like, okay, well, this population has higher rates of pain, higher rates of injury because of what they were essentially trafficked to do was Mm -hmm. coal mining. And then that other piece of of the puzzle there is the isolation so no one was going to know about it no Mm -hmm. one was going to know that the opioids were being tested on human beings and 
you know, people from Appalachia have been talking about this now for a long time, especially the Appalachian grannies. Mm-hmm. And um, and what I mean by this phrase Appalachian grannies, because people probably don't know this phrase that I'm saying, Appalachian grannies are these older women. They may not even be grandmothers, but they're older women in Appalachia who have a lot of wisdom. And so this has been getting talked a lot about in Appalachia before, but people outside of Appalachia were ignorant about this. Until really, this TV show Dope Sick came out. Yeah, absolutely. I loved that show because it came from such a place. It was created from such a compassionate place. And the Mm -hmm. view that they showed, like they so clearly illustrated and laid out the fact that the population had been taken advantage of. And as you said, literally, it was tested. This drug was tested on human beings. And they, they really, I feel in that, in that show, that was illustrated very well. Mm-hmm. And it showed how many different kinds of people live in those kinds of communities too. Right. That's, you know, and that's something that I don't think gets discussed enough. I mean, sure, there's the more what you think of when you think of like stereotypical hillbillies, but we, we have doctors, you know, we have people with higher education. We have people who are just, the people are so intelligent and I don't yes. I think that we try to compare the people of Appalachia and specifically of West Virginia to others by the standards that we compare others to. But just because someone doesn't have a formal education, even a high school diploma does not mean that they cannot run circles around someone else in other aspects of intelligence. Mm. Yes, 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 yes. Oh my gosh. I have been <laughs> shouting this from the mountaintops, Cassie, now for a long ass time. I love it. I, my grandparents who were from Appalachia were the smartest people I knew. There was even an Ivy League school that went to try to recruit my grandmother to attend there. And she was like, I'm not going with you. And she like (laughs) dropped out of school at like 16. Or then like my papa, he had an eighth grade education and And yet he's smarter than people that I know with doctorates, you know, and people think that I'm joking whenever I say that. I'm like, no, that, that is not a joke. No. And also additionally, just taking it a step further is the fact that the amount of wisdom that that population is able to gain strictly through adversity and surviving and thriving through that, I mean, is just (laughs) incredible. The amount of wisdom. Yes. Oh, I love that. Okay. There's this chef, Sean Brock. Are you familiar with him? No. Okay. So Sean Brock, uh, he was on an episode of Chef's Table on Netflix and he is from Appalachia and he was talking about Appalachian cooking and I loved it so, so much. Like, I was like, yes, like, I'm like, this is the kind of representation that we need, mm-hmm. you know? And so with this, he was talking about how Appalachian cooking is different than what people think of for traditional Southern type cooking. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you can speak more to that, because I, I mean, it's like cooking is also a form of wisdom that comes from Appalachia. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because 
and I'll speak, I'll speak to it the best that I can comparing the two, or perhaps I'll just talk about what I know, and that's Appalachian cooking. I mean, the fact is, you know, in my bio, it says that my family used local plants and herbs and things like that as medicine, but it's, it's not uncommon in that area. At least it wasn't because of the fact, again, to geographical isolation. Sometimes there weren't mm-hmm. things like doctors that were readily available. Um, so you see that playing in coming into play in cooking. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of, okay, similar between just my form of Appalachian cooking and what you think of when you think of Southern cooking is that local items are used. Like, you know, locals all the rave now, but local, local ingredients has been the heart of Appalachian cooking forever. So, so yeah. talking about local ingredients. So let's take, for instance, an Appalachian garden. Mm-hmm. What would be the main things that you would find in summertime? in an Appalachian garden. Okay. Yeah. So my grandmother, actually, my mom's mom, she actually grew a garden. She had moved to Ohio and she was living in a trailer park, but there was like a plot of garden land. And I remember as a child having to go to the garden with her and pick things. And so it's a lot of things like tomatoes, fresh tomatoes, corn is big, green beans. I can remember so many summers sitting on the porch with my granny, Shark or uh, whatever you do to green beans, um, snapping, stringing them. There we go. <laughs> I gotcha. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's a lot of vegetables that can be canned because mm-hmm. in Appalachia, because of the level of poverty and things like that, you don't think about just the immediate future. You have to kind of plan ahead for the winter. When what are we going to eat when there, you know, resources aren't going to be available when there's no garden. So it's a lot of vegetables that can be canned at home, such as corn, green beans, tomatoes. And of course, there were also things like cucumbers for eating during the summer. But again, it was more of like, Appalachians have to take this longer view, like kind of look ahead. Yes, absolutely. In Appalachian kitchen, I think about like this blend of like sweet, savory, and sour. Yes. And I think that a lot of people get surprised. They're like, sour? What do you mean? Because I'm very influenced by Appalachian cooking, even though that I live up north. And so like, for instance, whenever you're talking about the beans and the green beans and stringing them, my great grandmother, we would call the grandmothers um, in the region of Appalachia, where my family comes from, we'd call them nannies. And then her nickname was Big Nanny. So, (laughs) So Big Nanny, she moved from the south up north because my dad's family had come up with the great migration she brought a whole bunch of bean seeds with her (laughs) and uh and it was like my grandparents were like what what are you gonna do with all those bean seeds big nanny and she was like I just want to see how they grow up north (laughs) (laughs) and uh they had like put a trailer behind their home that looked like a cabin you know and it's up north so you know so people are just like wow (laughs) you know like like uh, there's there's the hillbillies on the block you know yeah (laughs) and she just have all these beans growing and and stuff but yeah I, I mean it was like having like pickled beans with Mm -hmm. some smoked ham, you know, having a roll on the side with some honey. That was something that is pretty common. 
And yes, and speaking of the sweet and savory, this is something a little unusual that my granny did, but I have heard of one other person. So I'm kind of interested if you've heard of this. So obviously many Appalachians and West Virginians keep the lard or like the bacon grease, the drippings and things when you cook breakfast Mm -hmm. meat like that. So she kept that and she would take it, take the liquid grease and pour it over cantaloupe in the summer when we would harvest that from the garden. Have you, have you ever done that or heard of that? I have heard of it. I have not done it yet, but Mm -hmm. I would be so down to try it. And I would also be really interested to have that with like some finely chopped basil on top of that too, just for, you know, a little extra flavor there. Oh, that's a little freshness too, like brightness to it. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. (laughs) Yeah. Actually, I had no desire to try the cantaloupe and bacon grease until you just added the basil. And now I'm like, okay, yeah, I could try it. (laughs) Well, and also if there's like, you know, a few little bacon bits too, then Mm -hmm. you could just like top that a little bit on it, Mm -hmm. you know? And if you just kind of drizzled it a little bit, but you know, it's like something that you could probably do too is like, um, so something that my nanny would do, she would mix a little bit of um, bacon grease with some lemon juice, and then that would serve as a salad dressing. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So this is now a cooking podcast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently so. <laughs> I love it. I love it. (laughs) I was just telling Cassie before we started recording here that I ate cake for breakfast. So it's like a great day. And I made this rhubarb cake and um, my nanny is now passed. And so whenever she passed, I actually got her cast iron skillets. And so she had gotten these, I think, whenever she had gotten married. Um, And so these cast iron skillets now are nearly a hundred years old. So it's like in cooking in them, you know, it's just, it feels like a very spiritual experience. Oh yeah. And so that's something that has really helped me in connecting to my roots. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're laughing about this is a, this is now a cooking podcast, but honestly, you know, I experienced a lot of adversity and I won't go into details, but 11 year bad relationship. And I left last July. And after I got out of that, it's been a, a, you know, a long process, a layered process. And part of that was learning ritual to be mindful. And Mm -hmm. I, I had become really sick during this relationship and I couldn't cook anymore. And that was a a piece of my identity that was really difficult for me to lose because Mm. it was very Mm -hmm. important to me. So when I started to recover and I was able to do things like walk again and stand and cook, that became this like spiritual experience for me almost. It became this way of me focusing on something other than the racing thoughts that my complex PTSD sort of influenced mind was focusing on, largely framed by my Appalachian roots, came this 
dichotomous thinking this black or white you have to react quickly because that's that's all mm -hmm. that's all I knew so one particular week I was working on patience and trying not to have these knee-jerk reactions and trying to understand mm. that I was now safe and that it was okay to take my time and think about things and so as I was doing that I really tapped into cooking which was a piece that I had lost of myself um, because I wasn't physically able to cook for about the last 11 years and so my friend that I was staying with at the time was like, I'd, I'd love some French onion soup. And I thought, well, what the heck? I'll make you some French onion soup. I'd love to. And so I had not, you know, cooked down onions super slowly, caramelized onions in a long time. And I forgot how long that process took. And it has to be on such a low temperature for so long. I mean, I think it took right. like 40, 45 minutes or something just to cook down this pot of onions. Yeah. And just connecting to my body and my senses as I did this and just being mindful of the activity that I was doing rather than focusing on these uh, ruminating thoughts that my complex PTSD usually framed and, and, you know, caused me to just obsess over. I was focusing on what my hands were doing, how things smelled, how things looked, the colors. And it was such a slow process and you can't rush it. And mm -hmm. it just, it's, there's something special when you conceptualize some sort of idea such as patience, but then when you're actually able to apply it in real life and physically, it just mm -hmm. solidifies the whole experience. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, whenever thinking about trauma and, and healing from trauma too, a lot of it is about starting to be present again, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. there's that experience of dissociation where dissociation is this pretty advanced coping skill that helps people survive. But then what ends up happening in prolonged dissociation, it can affect our hunger cues, it can affect our mm -hmm. behaviors, we can be disconnected from other people as we're disconnected from ourselves in order to survive. And yeah. so whenever we're in that survival mode, then it's also going to be affecting the way that we eat or do personal hygiene as well. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in part of this, like we talk about engaging in the five senses mm -hmm. and how incredible cooking is because you can engage in all of the five senses there yes. in order to provide grounding within just one activity. And it was something that I had been so sad and had grieved so hard because that was such an important piece of my identity. So combining that with, with experiencing the world through my senses, and you mentioned dissociation, that is something that childhood trauma definitely, I do that really well. I dissociate really, really effectively. And I did not even have at the specific time when I was making the French onion soup, I wasn't even aware of what I knew the word dissociation, but I did not know what it looked like. And I did not realize mm. that that's what I was doing all of these years. I mean, like I can have a conversation with you and be actively engaged, but not be actually there. Yes. Yes. And you know, people can have different words for it, like emptiness or disconnection or lack mm -hmm. of belonging and all these different ways to articulate it. And I think it's okay to not use, you know, the psychological word for it. I think sometimes whenever we may get so hung up on the psychological words for it, 
that we don't know how to actually describe to people how we feel in our words and how important it is for us to show people with our words about what our experiences are. I agree 100%. And I'm a person like people who know me well know that I'm kind of anti-label for that reason. It's not that I'm anti-label. I think labels provide a great structure. But when we get hyper fixated on, you know, assigning specific words to things like dissociation, there's a lot lost in translation because we don't all think on the same levels. We don't all have the same educational background. And so when you you take the kind of experience piece away from that, the storytelling piece away from that, sure, you're appealing to a certain population. You know, you can talk to mental health care providers and use words like that. But what about people who are experiencing the same thing that you did, but they don't have that same language capability or they just have a different word for it. And so learning to kind of pivot with language and to just be authentic to yourself rather than focusing on the specific label, I think is so important because it resonates with more people. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So speaking of pivot of language and growing up, my dad would do code switching. So Mm -hmm. he would speak like a hillbilly or Appalachian Mm -hmm. and then he would code switch and then start speaking like someone from the northern midwest Mm -hmm. and he even did speech therapy and that's how he really started learning the midwest dialect Mm -hmm. and so I'm wondering you know with code switching too how, like, if that's something that you've experienced, or if you've experienced that, like, how does that feel for connection with yourself and your culture? That is a, I love this question. I'm, I'm kind of a language nerd. First of all, I love the nuances of language. Uh, It's, it's just such a powerful tool. And so anyway, when I was in junior high and high school, I came across something that I was very passionate about, and that was competitive public speaking, also known as forensic. And as such, I was discouraged from using my kind of accent because there were certain words that were not the standard accepted way of pronouncing words. And so I quickly taught myself how to speak without an Appalachian accent. You know, I just kept kind of perfecting that as life went on into adulthood. And I was proud of that for the longest time. But I actually am grieving that piece of myself at this point as an adult, because and I know this isn't exactly code switching, but just because I lost that piece of my identity, I forced it out. I wasn't true to my roots, because I perceived everyone else as seeing it as less than, that I was not to the same standard, that people would think that I was unintelligent. And largely that was because the people who were in my population were saying that. The teacher who was coaching me on how to be a great public speaker was saying, you know, your pronunciation of this word is not accepted, change it. And she was doing so with the best intention, she was, but it was creating this inauthenticity. And so I still do dip into a little bit more of the accent when I go home for an extended amount of time, or if I'm talking to someone with a similar accent. Back in the day when I used to drink, I'd really slip hard into it. I know a lot of us who've gotten out of Appalachia, who no longer live there, we all kind of experience that. Yes, yes. And whenever you're speaking to this too, I think a lot of this, it's, really important to look at history for us to understand this well or for people who 
are not, you know, connected to the Appalachian region to understand this well, because whenever we think about the different corporations that affected hillbillies, that affected Appalachians, they were most oftentimes corporations that were run by people from the North, or Mm -hmm. as they were called, Yankees, were running these corporations. And so this started, you know, post-Civil War times. And so then what ended up happening was then people who were hillbilly or Appalachian, then they started seeing, oh, well, for me to be an authority, then I need to start speaking like a Yankee. But then there were these systems set in place that did not allow for people from the South to be able to get into leadership positions. I mean, I think that that kind of continues to this day. I think part of the more tragic part about at least my part of Appalachia is that those systems do exist. You know, we're looked at as a subpar piece of humanity, really, by a lot of outsiders. But then again, not being given the tools to understand other areas, not being given the tools that we need, like mental health care, because there's a lot of trauma in West Virginia. But all of these systems that we're told are going to work for us, that are there to help us, actually don't. They just keep us you know, back in, in the same mindset that we were in the beginning. So it's kind of one of the more tragic pieces. Absolutely. And then there's this intersectionality too, whenever looking at BIPOC and LGBTQ communities within Appalachia. Yeah, absolutely. I know that for me, I graduated high school in 2001. And I, like I said, from Southern West Virginia, when I went to college, I went about six hours away and I was still in West Virginia, but I was in a piece that is very close to DC, about an hour and a half away. So from personal experience, I was taught that being gay and it was strictly gay. There was no gender or anything like that. It was just gay because that was the language that we had then in that area, that it was very, very wrong. When I left and I went to a different part of West Virginia, there was a large, again, just gay community, just gay lesbian community in that area but outside of that there was no more that was you know first of all we again we didn't have exactly the language that we do now to encompass things but also it was that these systems you know really in West Virginia these mindsets and these systems that keep these mindsets in place kind of keep people from understanding that this population exists within West Virginia Mm, yeah, absolutely. I remember going down and visiting an aunt of mine and I'd call her Amy. And mm-hmm. um, whenever I would go see my Amy, then I ended up having my hair cut short for the first time uh, whenever I was in middle school. And now my Amy, she could talk anyone's ear off. So <laughs> like, the guest room that I would stay in wouldn't have a door on it. Mm-hmm. And you know, whenever you can feel that someone's face is close to yours. <laughs> yes. I was like, you know, entering into REM sleep. So I wasn't deep in sleep yet. And then I felt someone's face near mine. And I <laughs> open up my eyes and she looks at me and she says, oh, good, you're awake. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what do you want, Amy? And she was like, I want to show you family picture albums. <laughs> and it was just <laughs> like, 
I could not get a break from you. <laughs> um, but I loved her dearly. She was the most eccentric person I've ever known. And I will probably become her whenever I am her oh. age. Um, because I, I already see the, I, I already <laughs> see the path, Cassie. I, I see it. Oh, I love it. <laughs> but I was sitting down in her kitchen and I, I have this belief that there were probably a lot of LGBTQ people in my dad's side of the family. They just didn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. because I, I have a pretty good gaydar. And so yeah. <laughs> I was doing my rotation because we would rotate of sitting down and talking with her because that's how long she could talk. She could talk for 15 <laughs> hours. We timed it. <laughs> oh my <And> God. <laughs> so I was sitting down for my rotation with her. <laughs> and she looks at me with my new short hair and she says, Ab, because that was my nickname. She said, I know you're gay. And God loves you. And I love you too. And that was the only person in my family who really acknowledged it. Acknowledged Mm -hmm. my, like, I don't identify as gay. I identify as queer. Mm -hmm. But that was the language that she had. And she was really the only one who spoke it out loud. And, you know, and said how much she loved me and how God loved me as well, which is just something that, you know, I will hold dearly for the rest of my life. And it's just, it's very interesting to hear about people's experiences, queer experiences across Appalachia, where it can be from one side of the spectrum to being very hateful to then the other side of the spectrum of being very loving. And then in that in between of, we're just going to talk about this at a kitchen table and no one else can hear us. Yeah. Yeah. Type of a thing, you know, that's, and that is just, let me pause for a moment and say that is such a beautiful memory and such a beautiful moment. And I don't know if people realize how rare of a moment that is in a place like Appalachia, like West Virginia specifically. Again, isolation, lack of exposure. It's not that everyone inherently hates people who are different, but there comes a little bit of fear with not knowing. And just anyway, but my queer experience, I was actually very homophobic when I went to college. I was very afraid of gay people. My dad would, you know, tell me how bad being queer, being gay was and how and I was Pentecostal, so I was told I, I would go to hell. And so I remember sitting around in, in high school and actually talking to friends right before I went to college and saying, this is this is like the biggest joke of, I think if, if the universe plays jokes on people, this was what happened to me. I would sit around and I would say, I'm great with whoever my college roommate will be, as long as she's not a lesbian. So 18-year-old mm. Cassie shows up at my college dorm carrying a television, my roommate who's a year older is talking to me and she's like, hey, I'm late for soccer practice, blah, 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 I gotta go. I'd love to stay and help you. And so she leaves and as she's leaving, she stops and she kind of turns around and smiles and she's like, by the way, I'm a lesbian and if you have a problem with that, you should probably go ahead and move out. So, but I'll see you later. And I was like, oh my God. The universe was delivering this to you. (laughs) Yes. And I think one of the only reasons that I didn't move out because I, I, again, my dad had just made me so fearful, even though I wasn't practicing religion at that time, I was so scared. 
I felt like it would be rude to move out. And so I stayed and she ended up being one of the most important people in my life to date. And it was just, yeah, it was, you know, this wonderful friendship. And I saw a level of kindness in this unsuspecting, you know, uh, resource. I, I found this level of kindness that I'd never experienced from anyone before. And so it really opened my eyes to my own queer experience and, I actually had to leave Appalachia to have that. So I love this so much because (laughs) there's a kindness there, but then there were also the firm boundaries that Mm -hmm. she was setting too. And so you learned a lot from her. And so I'm curious, you know, where you're at in your life today, how do you approach people who are homophobic and transphobic with kindness, but also firm boundaries? Well, I think my approach is a little bit different. So I never had a like coming out moment. I identify Mm -hmm. if I have to put a label on it as pan, Susan Pan. And so I just, I never had a moment where I was like, oh, I'm queer or I'm this or I'm that. I just, I was, and I just loved who I loved. And that was kind of the end of it. And so I, again, partially because of childhood trauma and things, I kind of live in this weird space in my head where I'm so divided, I can kind of chameleon when I deal with people. And Mm -hmm. it used to be a people pleasing tendency. But now it's more of a just I know how to relate to so many different people. So when I come Mm -hmm. across homophobic people, because, you know, my own queerness isn't the biggest piece of my identity that I, you know, that I kind of present up front. People talk to me and people accept me. And then I just drop in casual conversation, (laughs) a a piece of my queerness. And they are so dumbfounded. They're like, I've already established this connection with you and I like you, but you don't make sense to me because now you're telling me that you're this thing that I hate. Mm. And I just treat it so naturally that Mm -hmm. often I don't even... Often there's not even a need for boundaries because they are so confused. But when those boundaries do come up, that's something that I'm still learning, quite honestly, because I have just started my own healing process within the past year. So, so establishing those firm boundaries of, you know, you can, you can't treat me like I'm garbage because I don't align with how you think that people should be. I'm still learning that dance. (laughs) Well, I think that it's really interesting that you bring up the chameleon piece, because I think that this is something that's very common to the experience of being Appalachian or being hillbilly whenever someone has moved outside of that area, because Mm -hmm. there can be this survival mechanism of Mm -hmm. being a chameleon in order to socially survive an environment that is not really designed for hillbillies or Appalachians. That makes a lot of sense, actually. I, I never thought of that outside of myself, but that's an interesting perspective. Yeah. I think that a lot of times whenever talking about being a chameleon, that it's looked at as being something almost malicious. But I mean, I have gone to zoos. I've seen chameleons. Chameleons are anything but malicious. (laughs) You know, they're, they're not a predator, right? They're a chameleon and they're a chameleon. They change their colors wherever they're at in order to blend into their environment so that they will not have a predator come after them. 
And so I think about that with hillbillies. They change the way that they sound, the way that they look, in order for predators to not see them as prey. Oh, that's, you're absolutely right. I'd also like to add that I think that part of it beyond just survival is that it is a way for us to relate to other people. Um, yeah. Because the compassion, again, that that hillbillies and that West Virginians and Appalachians have is, is so overlooked, but our hearts are so big. And so by being that kind of chameleon, we can more easily relate to other people. Yes, absolutely. And then I'm hearing this. I'm hearing post-traumatic growth right now. (laughs) I love it. I love it. So something that you and I have talked about off podcast was about hillbilly gothic, about how a lot of people in hillbilly communities, they end up dying young because of lack of health care because of environmental pollution that can cause very rare diseases and and rare forms of cancer that we don't have treatment for yet. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it can be surprising to be living to age 30 to age 40. And I'm wondering, like, what existential work have you done whenever reconnecting to your Appalachian roots to, you know, be embracing life after 40. Yeah, that was that was something that was very difficult for me. It was very frightening. My mother died when she was 41 years old, and I spent most of my life assuming that I would do the same. I was a shock when I made it to 30, and I just turned 40 in May, and that was a huge personal celebration for me that I had made it. Part of it was mental health stuff because again, I wasn't given the tools to deal with the type of trauma that Appalachia had thrown at me. It was so intense, this whole concept of that I was going to die young, that I actually experienced depersonalization last winter. I was kind of Mm. dissociating to the point that I was almost not on the same plane anymore. And I started Mm -hmm. having these almost death premonitions Mm. of I'm dying, I am going to die. And it was intense. It was frightening. But I was able to first of all, see that I could exist in that state. And it was my mind and body protecting me. And I was still safe. I was rational, you know, I wasn't psychotic or anything. So I learned to accept the fact that this is something that's going to happen to me. But also, it gave me this space to work through why do you feel this way? Why Mm. are you thinking this? And it all comes back to that's the the template that was set for me through seeing everyone die so young and knowing the things that I know about my roots and where I come from, the more unfortunate pieces that is. It was something that was really difficult to work through, but being present, as we talked about earlier, is helpful on so many different levels. And for me, that's part of what has helped me, just surrendering to the present just being aware of the fact, hey, I'm alive now. I could die at 41, but so could anyone else. And why am I going to sit and just focus on that? Why not be present in the moment and enjoy the beauty of everything that's around me? Yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. (laughs) I mean, I also inherited this belief about dying young from my Appalachian family. Mm -hmm. And so every time like I celebrate a birthday, I'm like, oh, wow. (laughs) I'm I'm still here. Risk-taking behavior is very prevalent among that population because of this 
perceived shortened future because yeah. we just have normalized such behavior in such a way that it does not register as it being a risk at all. Yes. Yes. Oh, mm-hmm. so then you were watching all of this and growing up and did that cause you to take like a more guarded or conservative type approach for yourself to be able to protect your safety? Honestly, I think that my guarded approach to life came from religion. I think that um, Mm. the Pentecostalism, which caused so much damage for me mentally, emotionally, it actually ended up being kind of what saved me too. Because Mm. of the things that were passed off as morality, such as, you know, abstaining from certain behaviors, I, even after I left the church, you know, I was kind of upholding these behaviors still. And it ended up keeping me from taking risks that a lot of people do. Mm, yeah, so the, that the makes thing, sense. Yeah. The same thing that damaged me the most, arguably, saved me. Mm, mm. Would you say that that happens quite a bit for people who are Appalachian is using religion in a way as a protective factor? I saw it with my mother. My mother was, so she died when I was nine years old and she was an incredible ray of light walking the earth, honestly. And she leaned so hard into religion because her own childhood had been so full of adversity that she leaned into this Pentecostalism as a way to reconnect and to kind of save herself. And unfortunately, that's where she met my dad, who was not a good character for her to marry. But she leaned in so hard because I think that sometimes with such levels of adversity and trauma, there just there needs to be something to ground a person. And so, yeah, I think I've, I've seen that a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then whenever having the lack of resources then religion can be very accessible. Absolutely. Uh, And so I guess, you know, and considering this too, you know, it's like you did what you had at the point in order to help you at that time of your life. Right. And I don't, yeah, exactly. I don't, I don't fault her for Mm -hmm. that. She, exactly. She did, she worked with the resources that she had at that time. And that resource was religion. And my mother was someone who never weaponized it towards anyone Mm. else. She believed what she believed. And sure, she'd like to see other people believe similarly. I think that's human nature partially, but she never weaponized it. And I think that's an important factor, distinguishing factor. She sounded like an incredible person. Absolutely, she was. If you could offer your younger self one piece of advice about liberation, what would that be? Yeah, this is a really powerful question, especially at the juncture in life that I'm in right now, just starting the healing process a year ago. And so I'm going to say it as if I were talking to myself. Mm -hmm. And I would tell myself that the pieces of yourself that you've attempted to mute and to disconnect from, which were my Appalachian roots, are the very thing that will set you free. You are lacking in authenticity until you can embrace the fact that your roots, both the good and the bad of your roots, laid the framework of the structure for who you are. And in surrendering to that awareness, the awareness of the fact that Appalachia both broke you and healed you. Surrendering to that is what will save you. Wow. That just, (laughs) 
that took my breath away. (laughs) And it kind of just felt like this powerful, like, white light came to the room that I'm in as you were saying this. And I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your Appalachian wisdom. And Mm -hmm. it has just been such an honor and such a blessing to have connected with you. And I'm really, really glad that you're here. Thank you so much. I so appreciate this opportunity. Thank you so much for joining us on the Liberated Porch podcast today. If you liked what you heard, please rate, share, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, this is your host, Kit Morgan.